12-year-old translator, Atlanta Murders, Black, Brown, and Asian Solidarity. Today on The Pursuit, Julie won. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Julie Wan. Friends, I'm not going to lie, this has been a hard week. In the past year, with the rise of anti-Asian hate and violence culminating last week with what took place in Atlanta, I knew we needed to take a pause from our show and have a special conversation. So that's when I decided to ask Julie to be on the show. Julie is a first-generation Korean-American and is running for city council in Queens, New York, in District 26. If elected, Julie will be the first Korean-American council member in New York City history. Julie is seeing how underrepresented Asian-Americans are in local government, and she is taking a step to correct that problem herself. Julie, you call yourself a first-generation Korean, and I, I think typically most first-generation Koreans that I think of are typically older, um, don't speak English as well, um, but you specifically call yourself a first-generation Korean, and, and so I'd love to hear your reasoning why. I definitely am a first-generation Korean. I think in Korean, for the Korean audience out there, we call it 1.5 generation or I guess a lot of first-generation immigrants would call it ijamo. But for non-immigrants, that doesn't translate well, right? For me to say, <laughs> I came here when I was eight years old, so therefore I'm a 1.5 generation or 0.5 generation immigrant. So it's easier to say first generation to make it a very clear point that I was not yeah. born here. I am yeah. a naturalized citizen, but I make it clear I came here from another country in search of a better opportunity and future with my family. And what was your journey as you were growing up as a first-generation Korean, as a Korean immigrant uh, child? Where did you grow up? What was it like growing up? And you know, we're going to get into a conversation about race. I would love to hear about how, what were some of your early experiences with race? I think the first thing to note is that when you come from a country like South Korea, you grow up in a homogenous environment and culture where the predominant language is Korean and the people that you grow up with, your teachers, the students, your neighbors are all also Korean. So you're used to seeing one kind of face, one kind of language and one kind of culture being in your exposure immediately. And it wasn't until 1998 when we immigrated from South Korea after the financial collapse that I was dropped into an environment. I remember my first day of school sitting on a rug with all the alphabet letters in different colors and looking around me, all the other students were surrounding me because it was my first day and it was the introduction with our teacher, Mrs. Sherman. And I spoke no lick of English. I had no idea what was going on, but all the children stared at me because I was in a I was in New York in the suburbs and it was predominantly a Caucasian neighborhood. And they all looked at me and they did say some racist things like ching chong and they would make fun of me. They would do the squinty eyes. But I was making fun of them too because I was like, why are you so pasty? You're so pale. Your eyes are funny too. Why are your eyes blue? So it was definitely a, a cultural shift where I went from predominantly 
in a culture that looks like my own, that is familiar to me, eating the same food that I enjoy, to an American culture with predominantly American children of white descent and eating foods like chicken nuggets, which I thought was so strange and everybody would eat with their hands. <laughs> it is something interesting about children um, because I think on its face, children are just noting differences, right? Like you've never seen blue eyes before. So you're asking why are your eyes blue? But I do think that there's something that gets added into children, maybe through parents or through culture or through environment that starts adding values to those blue eyes or to your Asian, you know, face and your language and your food. Um, and so it's just an interesting thing to explore as children uh, grow up. I'm, I'm curious for you, how, what has been your experience um, with the environment sort of affecting the interpretation of children? Yeah, I think as a child, coming from a country where there was no black or white people and there was no value to your skin color, but there definitely is a inherent, I think, pedestal for Caucasians in all Asian countries because of our imperialist history. And I remember growing up and seeing posters with Americans from Hollywood and thinking that they were beautiful, but culturally we never had those discussions, especially as a child. But I remember distinctly in the playground within the first year of me being here, there was one black student and her name was Ashley. And I remember we were all running around in the playground and she reached out her hand. And that was the first time I saw the difference between her palm color and her hand color. And I remember I grabbed it and I was like, wow, this is amazing. You got some cool hands that we were running around together. But all the other children, I quickly realized, did not like her and did not talk to her. Mm. And... That didn't change the way that I felt about Ashley. But even as an eight-year-old, I knew that there was some sort of division where the children were not friends with her. And at the end of the day, she and I became friends probably because we were those two children who didn't look like the rest of the children. Yeah. And so for you, as you grew into your own racial identity, when do you feel like your growth into the comfort of your own racial identity occurred? It probably was not until... I was in my mid-20s. My parents had made it very clear to me, inside our home, we speak Korean and we eat Korean food, but outside of our home, I'm American. So they made sure that I had no Korean friends. They didn't want me to hang out with other Korean children. They wanted me to learn English as fast as possible. And they wanted me to take on and assimilate American culture as much as I could. So we never watched, I was never allowed to listen to Korean music anymore. I wasn't able to watch Korean TV anymore or movies. I could only watch American TV shows, music, and really drink that Kool-Aid and become as American as possible. But in my 20s, and I think even in high school, knowing that there were undertones of racism, even though I had many friends, I could see the few of us, like four or five of us who were Asian American descent, we would start to form our own clique and eat lunch together and hang out together outside of school as well. But it wasn't until in my 20s when I began began working and I, I noticed a stark difference in the path of promotion. And even 
a difference in um, favoritism in certain settings in the professional setting that I started to realize after a happy hour with one of my coworkers who are my good friends, even though he had three years of experience less than me, he was still getting paid $20,000 to $25,000 more than me. Wow. And nepotism was a part of it because he had an uncle who was an executive in the same company. So he had a leg up. But seeing that difference where now there was a worth to his to his family heritage and his skin tone, despite experiences and, and merit and professional ability and competence, just because I didn't have what I, um, I didn't have a family member who had that kind of ability or that stature in the company, as well as I think for me, I took it really personally, like, Hey, being the only Asian American in this team and a person of color. Now I know from having friendships within the circle that my coworkers were getting paid $25,000 more than me for the last two years. Part of the story of your journey is that now you are running for city council. Um, and in in Queens, uh, which is predominantly an Asian neighborhood, and so you your story goes from sort of being pushed for assimilation by your parents to sort of finding comfort amongst Asian Americans in your twenties, and now taking the step of representing actually uh, a large swath of Asians uh, and Asian Americans. Um, tell me about the decision to run for city council. What what spurred that on? Yeah, I think what really shifted was when within the last presidential cycle, when uh, former President Donald Trump came into office, I remember being in Washington, D.C. And shortly after, right before I'd gotten a phone call from someone that I knew, because I've always been in the intersection of the government and private sector business, because that's what has always been recommended to me by my mentors who were non-Asian American because they knew my background. They knew that my family didn't have resources for me to pay for grad school. They didn't have the network for me to get into whatever company or agency or an elected official's office because my background had been mostly in nonprofit and in public sector prior to graduating and being recruited to IBM. So their recommendation has always been, Julie, I know that you're bright. I know that you're sharp. I know that you move quickly. But because of the cards that you have been dealt, I recommend that you go into the intersection of public and private so that a company will pay for you to go get your MBA, so that a company can pay for you to get your JD if you want. And that's what what had happened. And I remember working at IBM, doing federal accounts, And I got a phone call from a friend who said, hey, Julie, we have an opening at Mayor Bowser, the DC Mayor's um, Commission of Mayor's Office of Asian American Pacific Islander Affairs. Would you like to interview? And I thought about it and I thought, man, I am too young. I'm inexperienced. I, I just don't qualify, but I'm flattered. And they really encouraged me and they said, we need representation. And we know we know that you have a wide reach. You're an expert networker. We think you should interview with us. Just come in on this day. And I took a leave of faith and I, I went in and I really connected with the director and I and I had a, a line of interviews, spoke with the mayor and got the commissioner gig. And I remember within the first week, we got a phone call. And it was after um, Donald Trump had been elected and there was a lot of 
racist rhetoric for Black, Brown, and Asian Americans. And one of the first things that I had to deal with were small businesses, especially because of my intersection of public and private in my background, in my professional background. And I remember a Korean American ajumma or a uh, middle-aged elderly woman called and she said, hey, can you come down to our store? It was a little chicken shop and around H Street. And I went down, it was a fried chicken Korean spot. And she was telling me how her workers were not coming into work. I said, and as you may know, if you're Asian American, you know that a lot of Asian Americans, especially Korean Americans, do employ Latin American workers and very frequently un- um, undocumented workers. And she started to explain to me that there were posters going around or flyers that were being handed out that had warned of ICE raids to come. And because of that, the undocumented Latin American workers had had fled or disappeared and her business couldn't go on and it was hurting her business. Yeah. And when we found out, we uh, we started to investigate and the mayor released a public statement that the ICE posters were falsely made and it was it was manipulated by someone on Photoshop or something to scare people, but it was not issued by the government and she condemned them and she reiterated that it was a sanctuary city and that they were safe and that they can resume business as usual and people can go to work safely and that we protect them. Yeah. So knowing that Korean Americans were the number one business owners in Washington, D.C., and seeing my own parents and seeing, I remember there was a news story because there was a noose that was hung in Washington, D.C. at a public park in mid-daylight. So all of these things coming up to light, as horrifying as it was, it was kind of fire for me internally to say, why are these things happening? And why are Asian Americans? And why is there so many so much xenophobia, xenophobia? And if these things are to happen, who is speaking up and who is representing them? Because for the small business owner that called me for that ajuma, it meant so much to her that there was a Korean American woman, so both a woman and someone who spoke her mother tongue that would empathize yeah. with her and understand her and would speak up for her to the mayor to say, you need to make sure that you prioritize this and make a public statement about it because this is affecting people's jobs and their income and their livelihood. It's like instant validation for her to mm-hmm. know that there's someone who understands her situation, understands her culture, understands her language on the other end of the phone. Yeah, and nobody that's questioning her, right? To say, why are you why are you employing undocumented workers? So there is a sense of safety and that's when I really began my journey of understanding I need to I need to unlearn a lot of what I had been trained for example, the model minority myth and assimilation and culturally being told, keep your head down, don't make a fuss, go on with your day, don't try to go against the government, do what it is that you see, just focus on making money and taking care of your own family, but don't go beyond your private sphere. And those are very um, Asian and probably immigrant family uh, values. Mm -hmm. Yes. So how did you end up... uh, running for city council in in Queens? After a long journey for my own personal faith, it was very clear to me that God was calling me back to Queens. And it was something that I fought hard against because when I left New York City after 
years of lying to myself that my sexual assault didn't happen as a child. It was something that I never wanted to come back to. I never came back even for holidays to see my family. It was just the last thing that I would want to do because in New York City itself was a trigger. But it wasn't until my time in DC where I began to get counseling and therapy and had the community support of other survivors who walked with me to heal from my trauma that I really felt a tug in my heart of being called back to New York and specifically to New York City, to Western Queens. And then God brought me back to New York. And that's when I was really trembling inside saying, this is the last place I would, I would rather live in a hut somewhere else than be back in New York City. But God was calling me here. So I ended up coming back and splitting my time between Washington, D.C. and New York to do both my responsibilities. And that's how it began, where somehow it was also a time where this is still a contentious contentious topic, but the specialized high school exam, it's kind of what we were dealing with at the same time with Harvard, with affirmative action, with Asian Americans being invisibilized, as well as uh, dismissed, saying there are too many Asian Americans and we need to make more room for black and brown students. Yet there was no discussion about how white students are still the majority of the student population in Harvard or any of the Ivy League schools. Mm. So there was something happening on a micro level in, in the in the city for high school students. And from my connections in Washington, D.C., I was brought in to work with Korean and Asian organizations in New York City to help them organize. And in the midst of that, I it's just funny how God interconnects all things. And when you look back in retrospect, you realize, man, God's hand was on me this whole time. And my former boss from my one of my first few internships in college, Kevin Kim, he was the first Korean-American council member to be because he had won the primary, but he lost the general to a Republican. But I saw him at a okay. dinner and he goes, Julie, when are you going to run for office? And I said, Kevin, maybe when I'm your age and I have <laughs> and I am set financially and I've taken care of my parents and they're OK. And I've paid back my like whatever debt that my family has. And he said, Julie, there is a professional timeline, like a political timeline and a personal timeline. And I was intrigued and I didn't respond. I just listened to him and he said, you can think of the white picket fence. You can have your children. You can have your finances set. And when you're ready to retire, you can run for office. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's also a political timeline where it is out of your control, but there is an optimal time for you to peak. And this is the time for young women of color to run for office and to have the passion and the voice for what is needed in society. And that's all we left it at. And I remember going back home that night thinking, man, there is so much happening in our society today, yet there is no representation. And the representation that we do have, I know that it's mostly from men. Because the first Korean American assembly member is a man, Ron Kim, and then the first Democratic Korean, um, Democrat Korean American con congressional member is Andy Kim, a man. And I started to think, are there? And then I started to research if there was ever a Korean American woman in, in New York State that was elected, and there was none. And uh, from, from there, it just kind of took months of me reflecting, searching, and 
having a lot of conversations with mentors and people around me and praying that came to a point where I said, okay, God, I will obey you. I will live here. I'm going to put my roots down and I'm going to try this. But it was a very scary time. And even now I still work for IBM while I'm campaigning, which is non, mm. not really what people do but and it's not recommended. Yeah. But because of what has happened during COVID, it's kind of led me here. But I think if it wasn't for COVID, I probably would not have ran at this time because it took both mm. my parents losing their jobs for them for me to see them get un- unemployed with all the small businesses shutting down. My mom works on the nail salon. My dad was working odd jobs at um, doing unloading and loading at different stores. And then my brother, as a gig economy worker, lost his job. And seeing family members and friends lose not only their source of income, but also their uh, health insurance is what made it really clear to me. This is a matter of life and death. And if our government is unable to provide relief financially, at least they should make sure that we don't die. And we don't even have that. And it was even worse for people who were undocumented. They weren't, they couldn't even get COVID tested to see if they had COVID or not. And that's what really pushed me over the edge and lit a fire under me to say, this is the time now. It's not going to be 10 years from now. It's not going to be 20 years from now when it's comfortable and easy, but it's going to be now when things are difficult for everyone. And it's the most financially risky for my whole family. This is the time. As you think about your sort of life journey, right now, you know, now you are running for city council in New York city and, um, you're putting yourself as a, as a representative, a literal representative of the people. And, you know, what, when you think about what it looks like for you to stand up in front of people and say, let me represent you. And you're looking out to, and you know, a very diverse audience that includes many Asian Americans. Um, when you think about your life journey and think about the fact that you now are stepping in to volunteer, to be representative of the people, how does that, how does all of your journey throughout life really sort of impact your, uh, decision to stand up in front of people? Every single day is really hard. You know, you watch movies and you watch TV shows about campaigns and political political journeys that individuals have. And you think, okay, that seems really exciting. And sometimes it could be tough, but it's not until now that I realize how incredibly hard it is and why people like me don't run for office. Every single day after a really long day and of just a whirlwind of political events or local things that are happening with other opponents and candidates that are going against you and their supporters going against you, spreading lies and rumors about you. I constantly have to recalibrate myself and ask myself, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to yourself? And a lot of people ask me also, there are other candidates that are running. Why should we pick you? What makes you so different? Mm. And it's exactly what you were describing. It's my lived experience. I'm not, I'm not romanticizing poverty. I don't wish poverty on anyone. When people try to say, oh, you're highbrow, you're working at a fancy company, you've worked with Fortune 500 companies, 
you've done all these fancy things. What makes you think you could represent us? And I have to remind them. My dad, when we moved here, rode a bicycle to work five to eight miles one way every day. I saw him drop 20 pounds within a month. Wow. When I saw my mom wash a customer's feet for the first time, I remember my brother holding my hand because we didn't have childcare. Our childcare was the public library. I remember tears streaming down his face and thinking, why is my brother crying? Because she's touching other people's feet. And why is it that I always have to see my mom counting dollar bills, hoping that we have enough money for rent and making sure that we have enough money for laundry? Hmm. And why is it that when I'm on the public school lunch line that other children pay with money, yet they say, what's your name? And I tell them my name and they check me off because I was receiving public school free lunch. I am not romanticizing poverty for anyone for the Prussian Olympics that a lot of people see um, in politics as well as um, in media because it might be trendy or it might be it might be popular or whatever people think it is. Yeah. But these are the real lived experiences that people are going through and a lot of them are falling through the cracks. And I think those are the things, no matter what kind of immigration background you come from, but being the translator as a 12-year-old to a legal document, these are the things that people are living through because we don't have language accessibility. And I think it's really important in a place like Queens, where we're 60% foreign born, that we have representatives that look like us. My district has never had an immigrant or a woman represent the seat. Wow. So I always tell people, even if it's not me, make sure that you recognize that we no longer want proxies to our experiences, but people who don't need explanations of why these things are difficult people that you won't have to lobby for days or hours or months and and protest or petition and try to convince them. Like we shouldn't have to prove that we need these benefits. We shouldn't have to prove that it's necessary. We shouldn't have to fight so hard. It should not have taken almost a year for the, for the government to realize that our Department of Labor, the ways that we do our unemployment benefits, should not be by day. There are hourly workers and those are the ones that need the most help. And even now, we don't have tip-based workers as part of the calculation. My mom can work 10 hours, 15 hours, 16 hours, and I can log that for her in our unemployment benefits. But at the end of the day, these nail salons are empty. If she makes no tips, she's basically getting scraps for base pay. She's not making any money. But the government doesn't account for that because the people who are making these decisions, who are in power, writing these legislations and making these processes – it's an afterthought for them. Yeah. I wanted to shift our conversation to start talking about the recent murders in Atlanta. And there has been a real swell in the Asian community of outrage and activism and really speaking out against anti-Asian racism. Um, I'd love to hear sort of your thoughts and your journey of processing what has happened in Atlanta. And we'll continue the conversation. I think what has happened in Atlanta is really important for our whole country because for the first time we're in the mainstream media for a murder and there is a discussion to say, is it or is it not racially motivated? That discussion should not be there, but it is there. 
And it is bringing us to a place where we have to reckon with, do we recognize that Asian Americans are minorities? Do we recognize that Asian American women are vulnerable and at risk? Do we recognize the classism that exists in society to say, if you work this kind of job and you get murdered, you did that to yourself. You should have accounted Mm. for that before you signed up to be a sex worker or to work at a massage parlor. You should have accounted for those risks before you decided to do that for a living. Wow. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is this question of, is it racially motivated? And I remember hearing the day after the murders happened that there was a local uh, Korean media uh, source that that interviewed um, an employee that said that when he would when the uh, the the murders were happening that um, Robert Long Aaron Long, Robert Aaron Long was saying I'm going to kill all Asians, and I remember looking for that in the U.S. media in the American English media, and I couldn't find any reference to it. And I remember going after Google after Google search, and I couldn't find it. And I there was something that hit me about that in that that there was a a an eyewitness man who was um, who escaped with his life and in his own language was able to tell someone, finally tell someone what he saw and no one listened in the mainstream media. And there's something to me about the fact that here is this Asian man whose voice is not unable to be heard because he's not speaking English. And there's just something heartbreaking about that fact. And to this day, I mean, we're recording uh, here on Monday, uh, the, to this day, it hasn't really been picked up at all in the mainstream media. And so the question of, is this racially motivated or was it sexually motivated? You know, you have the counterbalance of, well, we don't know if it was racially motivated, but we do have the account of this white murderer who admits that he murdered these people, but he says that it wasn't racially motivated. And so we're going to take his word for it because that's the only account that we have. Meanwhile, we have an account um, on the other side that isn't being told. And so the question for me is like, why is the murderer the one who gets to control the narrative of what actually took place? I think it's, well, first on a broader scale, it's very clear to me that for some reason, the, from my perspective, the justice system in the United States puts the burden of proof on the victim more than it does on the perpetrator. Mm. I see that firsthand with my mom's car accident when she was hit by a car as a pedestrian. But for some reason, the onus is on us to prove that the person who drove over her was at fault. Mm. That seems like a pretty broken system to me. And second, anybody that refutes that this was racially motivated is lying in my eyes. It's just a slap in the face for me when someone says that. And it's kind of a huge jab because we know that there is hypersexualization of Asian women and fetishization of Asian women. Even if I went down the street to any of my neighbors or one and any random person and I ask them, who works at a massage parlor? Who do you imagine works at a massage parlor? What do you associate with a massage parlor? Or I just have 
massage parlor and I ask a crowd, what comes to mind? Mm-hmm. I guarantee you that most of the people that respond will associate massage parlors with Asian women. And there's a reason why patrons go to massage parlors to find Asian women. So that individual who went to those massage parlors, he knew that as a gunman, he was going there to find certain racial groups. Yeah. So it is, it is beyond me why someone would say it's not racially motivated. We know that it's racially motivated. Okay, fine. It's sex motivated. You're hypersexualizing and fetishizing Asian women. And he's saying that because of that, they deserve to die. No matter what your route of logic is, both are evil and both are wrong and both are hate crimes. Right. They're inextricably entwined because his sexual fetish fetish was around Asian women. And so it was naturally um, racial as well. Yes. When you think about when you're processing through this Atlanta murder and the anti-Asian racism that is going on, you said that you think that this is an important time in our country because it is hitting the news. What do you hope to see as a result of that? What I hope to see is both for Asian American Pacific Islanders and non-Asian American Pacific Islanders. First, for the first time ever, I see my AAPI brothers and sisters speaking out publicly about their own experiences with racism which we don't hear often, especially because in our culture, we are told to keep our honor or not to bring shame to the family, whatever way it is that you want to bring it, want to describe it. Because our culture is so deeply rooted with ideas of shame or perceptions of shame, it is very unlikely that people of all generations would speak about their own experiences with racism. But for the first time, I'm hearing grandmothers speak out, but it took days. There were incidents that were reported that took days because those grandmothers were and grandfathers were not willing to even tell their own family that they had been punched or pushed to the ground or stabbed because yeah. of shame. But at least now we are hearing it, even if it took three days. Hopefully the next time it'll take less than three hours. This is how it begins for the Asian American community, for us to have a voice, not to silence ourselves, not to allow the model minority myth to erase our experiences But to actually say we need to speak up because at the end of the day, we are going to suffer the same fate. Whether you are against or pro Black Lives Matter, you have to recognize that as Black, Brown, Asian, yellow people, we're going to experience the same fate of white supremacy and racism if we don't speak up and we don't fight against it. And then for the non-AAPI community, for the very first time, I'm actually getting text messages and phone calls from friends who have lightly made microaggressions or jokes, racist jokes to me mm. in passing to say, hey, I'm sorry, what I said was insensitive. Yeah, And it means a lot to me to know that there is enough conversation because change, cultural change and racial reconciliation is only possible with conversation, dialogue and relationship building amongst all of these different ethnic groups. So it's huge that we're even have allowing these discussions to take place because it has become so in front of our face that it's in the mainstream news, which took months and weeks as well because people have been advocating for the mainstream media to pick up these AAPI hate crime stories and nobody was responding. Yeah. So hopefully as we move forward, we don't have to advocate 
so hard for these news media outlets to cover us. And hopefully the next time we don't have to advocate and call out that they're butchering our names. We don't yeah. have to we don't have to advocate for them to show our face, to humanize us, to not erase us, to not go along with the hypersexualization that media has always done. Yeah. And to not fault victims when they are murdered. You had mentioned uh Black Lives Matter and you know this narrative in the society now with anti-Asian racism and then the you know the year that we're coming out of with Black Lives Matter and centering the um the experience of our, uh, you know, black brothers and sisters, um, how do these two narratives converge and how do they occupy a place in the same space? There was the first rally that we had in New York city this year for stopping Asian hate, API hate. I had a sign that I made that morning that said black, brown and Asian solidarity. And there were a lot of photographs of it in the media. And I remember even that day alone in a rally of predominantly Asian Americans, there were probably a few hundred of us. I could not walk five feet without someone stopping me to say, what does that mean? And how does that work? Wow. Because even though historically we have had Black and Asian solidarity in the civil rights movement, for this generation, I think it is still a concept that is new or a concept that is still opaque for people. And it is really easy for us, especially knowing the history of anti-Blackness and racism in this country, for us who have not unlearned the model minority myth, who may have grown up or have currently still think that they're white adjacent to feel like you are somewhat responsible or you should be ashamed of yourself if you try to take up space or you try to co-opt, which you shouldn't. Like nobody should be going around saying like Asian Lives Matter to co-opt the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. But we do need to have these conversations and really show solidarity and define what it means. Because we can define it ourselves. If you don't know what it means, let's talk about it. What do you want it to look like? And we can go beyond what it means today. We can reimagine and make it even stronger. So I think it's really important to recognize that even for myself, I would cringe inside, especially in the month of February during Black History Month, when I constantly felt like, okay, I need to tweet about this or I need to, to put this out on Instagram. I need to send a few emails. I have to make a few phone calls and ask my black and brown brothers and sisters to show up with me to this rally, to mm -hmm. ask them to donate to this cause, to ask them to have these conversations with their uh, community to make sure that we're raising awareness. Because there was still a part of me saying, man, am I, am I taking away from something? Is there enough space for all of us to have these conversations? Yeah. Should it be kind of like, wait your turn? Should should we wait until there is real reparations and justice for my black and brown brothers and sisters for us to fight for AAPI rights, which is, which is wrong, but that's what um, I had been taught. So it was really important to me, and it still is, is that we really recognize that within my lifetime, I haven't seen adequate black and brown solidarity, black, brown, and Asian solidarity, because what I always think about is the LA riots. Yeah. And 
even with the education discussion, we need to have education for all people, especially for black and brown students. And for Asian Americans to constantly be used as a scapegoat for the virus, constantly be used as a scapegoat for inequities for our education systems to say it's the Asians who are causing your black and brown students to not have space in these schools. There's enough seats in all these schools. Yeah. And if there aren't, we need to build more schools and create a better system for all students. We can't punish one race over the other and risk them not getting an adequate education. So I really think that it really starts with us recognizing if all people of color, if the entire BIPOC community came together, then we are the majority. If all of us stood up for each other, then we would be we would be safer. We would have we would be at a better place as a society. And we also have to learn about each other, learn from, because even if we are at the end facing the same fate of violence and oppression and inequities, my experience of racism is going to be completely different from a Latin American descent or someone of black descent and recognizing, yes, we all face racism and we're all under currently white dominance or white supremacy, but our experiences are completely different. And I can't invalidate yours because it's different, but I need to listen and learn and see how we can move forward together. Julie, I think of that Korean woman who called in DC and got you on the other line. And there was that instant validation and dispelling the trepidation I'm sure she must have had before she picked up the phone. And I think about all of the Asian people that are now speaking out against Asian hate and the validation and the dispelling of trepidation that that other Asians must feel uh, for them to speak out about racism that they've experienced. And I can't help but think that your running for city council in Queens um, is just another step of representation and validation for voices that for so long in society have been overlooked and have been misheard um, and ignored. And I I just, I don't have a question uh, per se, but I just think it's so important for that voice to be heard on, you know, all these different types of platforms. The reason why it's really important for the mainstream media to cover our stories, especially heartbreaking stories like this, is because it validates and verifies and affirms that what we're going through is real. For over a year now, when it came to anti-Asian, like AAPI, racism and hatred and violence within the last year, is that because we were not getting much coverage, because this is not new. There was a woman who was, who had acid poured on her in Brooklyn while she was mm. taking out her garbage. There were other stabbings that happened in the subway because they were Asian American. So all of these things were not new, but it wasn't until now a year later after, after years of hearing anti-Sino rhetoric, xenophobic rhetoric, and hearing things like Kung flu, the Chinese virus, Mm-hmm. It should not have taken us this long to have these things covered because some Asian, like some AAPIs, probably felt crazy. Because I have people that I speak to now who say, "Thank you for acknowledging that these things are happening." Yeah. Thank you for validating how I'm scared. 
my anxiety, my fears. Because people can feel like what they're feeling is not real, that it's all in their head. And if society continues to dismiss them, continues to invisibilize people, then they're going to feel like they don't belong here. And we all deserve to belong here. We, We are from here and we're going to stay here. And this is our country just as much as it is anybody else's. And if you call a country home, you deserve to feel safe here. So I really hope that moving forward, that we will continue to have our voices heard in all spaces. I just recently talked to a college student who interviewed me from Hunter College. And his last question to me was, Julie, what do you hope to see 10 years from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, from the work that we're doing today? And my answer to him is, is that I hope APIs in all spaces and in all industries continue to do what they're doing. Not so much so focus on excelling or becoming financially wealthy or all those things that a lot of our cultural beliefs have been passed down to us, but that we will do what we love and we will excel in it, not because we're trying to make a bunch of money or anything, but because we're good at it and we're doing well and you're doing something that fulfills you. And that I hope to see API representation in all industries, whether it be finance, government, nonprofit, wherever the universe takes you, I hope you excel in it so that we have leadership and representation in all spaces, because it's not enough for us to just have representation in the government. If we don't have representation in Hollywood, we're going to continue to see only one kinds of movies like Crazy Rich Asians, where we continue to live into our model minority myth. So I really hope that we continue to acknowledge what has happened and we move forward. And I want to see more AAPI representation in all spaces because that's how we make sure that our our stories are told. And that's how we make sure that our experiences are valid and that they have weight. And that's how we have worth. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be this way, but that's how our society is built. So I really hope that everyone feels that they have a place here in this country and that they belong here and they are safe here. This is our country too. That's the message that I'm hearing from Julie in her words, but also in her actions as she runs for city council in Queens, New York. If you live in District 26, you can cast your vote for city council members on June 22nd. That's when the Democratic primary is. And can we endorse a candidate? Well, all I have to say is Team Julie. You can find out more about her and her campaign at julieone.com. Thank you so much for listening to The Pursuit. If you're like me and this past week has been a difficult one for you, please don't forget to take care of yourself and your soul. And if you'd like to connect and talk about it, you can find me on Instagram at richardl.ee. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. Okay. Is your name Eddie? Oh, yeah. I'm explain that. Sorry. Um, Eddie is the host of the IJM podcast. And so okay, got it. I am Richard Lee. Okay. 